A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Welcome everyone, Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by the French Hill Handyman. If you're in Israel and need any fixing or building, anything done professionally, call... 055-688-3965, excuse me. Um, this, we will be starting this week uh, the City series, the long-awaited, long-anticipated uh, Great American Jewish History series. And the cities are lining up. We've got a few already lined up. If you want to have uh, your cities done and the story told, so be in touch with me about that, about sponsorships. It should be interesting, and returning after last year, better than ever. So, looking forward to that. And in honor of the City Series, so I figured we'll speak about how we get to America and have cities all together. So, the uh, attempt at having a Rav HaKoylel, a chief rabbi, so to speak, of New York City was an attempt that was made once, and that was the the uh, idea that there's an, an American Jewish city and uh, and therefore it would need rabbinical leadership or it would be nice to have rabbinical leadership, especially in a place like New York. So they brought in, the Jewish community there brought in uh, RJJ, Rabbi, the yeshiva named after him is known today, but his real name was Rabbi Yaakov Yosef. And um, his last name was Yosef or Yosef or Yosef. Um, and, um, and that's a quite, in, quite, a, quite a story. Uh, this is talking about, we came in the late 1800s, 1888, and he passed away tragically, um, you know, in his, the prime of his life. Basically, he was broken by the whole experience in 1902. So it's an interesting saga. And quite a bit has been written about him over the years, a lot actually, uh, you know, more than, more than you, you'd expect, uh, quite a significant amount of literature out there. Recently, a full-length book in Yiddish uh, has been written on it, which was translated into something resembling English. But uh, Kimmy Kaplan has a good essay on him as well, as does Reb David Kamenetsky. Among others, there's uh, quite a bit uh, out there, so you might want to check that out also for the whole story. There's really two stories when we talk about Rabbeinu Yaakov Yosef or Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, or however you want to refer to him. Um, there's the rabbinate, 
or rather the failed attempt at rabbinate in New York, in New York City, which is usually what the focus is. But uh, there's another story. There's a story that Rabbeinu Yaakov Yosef, who was a great man, and uh, he was a great person, and his story and the world that he came from is no less fascinating. So I actually want to uh, focus on that part um, of, of where the world that he came from and and how he ended up coming to New York, and maybe we'll save the actual saga of his rabbinate in New York for another time. Um, so he's born in about 1841 in the town in Lithuania called Kroz, or Kroz, and he studies at the Velazhin Yeshiva, which was common at the time for the elite of um, you know of Talmudists, young Talmudists in in that part of the Russian Empire, and he was close at the when he was there with the Nitziv, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, the Rosh Yeshiva Velazhin, who liked his young uh, student so much that he nicknamed him Chorif, the Sharp One, and he came to be known as Rabbi Yankel Chorif. That's that came to be his nickname, which really stuck with him for the rest of his life. Um, and then he moves on to Kovna. And over there in Kovna, he becomes a close student of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the founder of the Musar movement, who in, during his years, his stint in Kovna, he had a yeshiva there. Um, but for most of the time, was at the Naviyazer Kloiz, a very famous uh, kloiz or shul in Kovna, where there was a yeshiva for many, many years. And Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, during the years that he was in Kovna, he... Um, was the Rosh Yeshiva there, and had some very prominent students who came from that Yeshiva, the Navi Ozer Klazer Blazer Gordon was also a student of his there, and Rabbi Yuchum Yudalei Perlman, the, the, uh, the later the Minsk Gadol, also studied by Rabbi Salanter at the Navi Ozer Kloiz. There's some very uh, famous personalities there, so Rabbeinu Yaakov Yosef was one of the closest students of Rabbi Salanter there in the years of Kovna. Rabbi Salanter was in Kovna for about eight years, he came to Kovna in 1849 when he left Vilna. He left Vilna in 1849 because um, of the pressure that was put on him to be affiliated with the Vilna Rabbinical Seminary, which had been established at the behest of the Tsarist government, and which Rabbi Salanter didn't want to have anything to do with because it was a, uh, he felt a lot of things were compromised in this uh, so-called rabbinical seminary. So he, le- he leaves in order to avoid the discomfort of refusing the position. He leaves and he goes to Kovna. And that becomes his new headquarters where he attempts to spread his ideas of the Musser movement. He establishes a base Hamusser in Kovna. He becomes a Rosh Yeshiva there. He tries to reach out to the local laymen in Kovna. And with a measured success, if the Musser movement um, had a any element of success in Rabbi Yisrael Salanter's lifetime, it was in the area of Kavna, and his influence and impact was in Kavna. His, his students, uh, primary students, all spent time in Kavna, different periods of time. Uh, Rabbi Naftali Amsterdam was later in life in Kavna. Rabbi Petterberger, Rabbi Tzla Blazer, um, was a, a, spent a lot of time in Kavna. The Beis HaMusser that Rabbi Yisrael Salanter established there lasted for many years, and his influence uh, really was there. So we talk about that, I mean, he was only there for eight years. He did come back for visits in 1857. He left um, Lithuania for, for permanently. He, he moved to Western Europe to, to Memel, uh, Königsberg, and then later to Berlin, to Paris, uh, and then back to Königsberg. But he would come for visits, and every time he would visit, he would visit his students there. In fact, one of his students in Covenant was Rabshraga Feivel Frank, one of the most, uh, one of the wealthiest and most respected members of the uh, suburb of the city, uh, called Alexut. 
Ooh, that's a whole, a whole story also. Either way, so it was during this time period where Rabbi Yisrael uh, was there that Rabbi Yaakov Yosef was able to study by him and become his close student. Now, while he's a young married man, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, he was appointed a Rosh Yeshiva. He's still in Kavna. His wife, it seems, I don't know for sure, it seems that she was from Kavna. Um, see, he gets married. He's young, in his 20s. Um, and he becomes sort of a Rosh Yeshiva. He becomes definitely in charge. He gives a shear and a yeshiva of a small yeshiva in a Kavna suburb. And let's hear a drum roll. The Kavna suburb of Slabatka. So he's a Rosh Yeshiva in Slabatka. Now, this is the 1860s. This is over two decades prior to the Slabatki Yeshiva that we all know of, the altar of Slabatka, of Nassim Finkel. So here, more than 20 years earlier, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef has a Yeshiva there, teaching students there. And, uh, you know, it, he already has it. So the original Slabatki Yeshiva uh, apparently goes to his credit as well. So it's very interesting. And then he upgrades to a rabbinical position. And in those days, to be a rabbi of a town was considered a more prestigious position than uh, than uh, a, a, a rebbe or a rosh yeshiva, in a yeshiva, um, and, uh, which is another story. And so he he leaves Kavanaugh and becomes a rabbi first in Vilon, and then in Yurburg, and later on in, in Nuzhagar, Novi Jager, and all these little little shtetlach in 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 Lita in Lithuania, in that area. When he was in Vilon, in that first uh, little town that he was in, he establishes a small yeshiva along with his rabbinate. And here's another novelty that's not credited to him, as far as I know. We know that the study, uh, we, I'm sorry, the study in in the yeshiva, in the, in the yeshiva that he established. The method of 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 Talmudic study was in was the style of Valajin, where which was his alma mater, um, in the old Valajin, the pre Reb Chaim Brisker. When Reb Yaakov Yosef was in Valajin, it was not uh, Reb Chaim Brisker there yet. Um, so he he was he was probably, in fact, he was probably older than Reb Chaim Brisker, but um, probably to check that uh, the the um, so he talking about pre Reb Chaim Brisker, the Netziv style. Um, and he implements that style of learning in the yeshiva. But what he does, but he, another thing he implements into the curriculum of this yeshiva that he has in Vilan is the study of Musr. Now we know, again, we know that the Musr yeshiva is, the pioneer of the Musr yeshiva is Slabatka, and later on Navardik. We know that Kelm was also a Musr yeshiva somewhat. Um, Kelm was sort of on the map already, but it was barely on the map. It was new, it was small. And, and Slobodka Navardic came much later. Slobodka in the 1880s, Navardic in 1896. And here he has, Rabbi a Musr Yeshiva, because he was a student of Yisrael Salantar. Uh, there you go. Another story that, that I think is, is not so well known with Rabbi Yaakov Yosef. He's the one who pioneers the Musr Yeshiva. Um, so, um, Maybe either one of the first or the first. I don't know. Maybe someone, you know, maybe there's another one that was predated him by a few years. Uh, he uh, Finally, he arrives in Vilna in 1883. Now, what's his position in Vilna? He's appointed to be the Magid of Vilna. Now, Vilna historically had no chief rabbi since the time of the famous dispute during the lifetime of the Vilna Gain. There was a rabbi named Reb Shmuel ben Avigdor, and there was a whole saga, which is a story for another time. It's a fascinating story, and perhaps we'll get to it. Um, in another episode. So the, the so since then, since Rishul ben Avigdor and the long and bitter dispute about the rabbinate, so there was no chief rabbi in Vilna. So the Vilna Bezdin, 
And the Magid of Vilna, these other rabbinical positions in Vilna were some of the most important positions in the rabbinical world because there was no chief rabbi of the town. So it was these other positions that were the important ones, and it was Yerushalayim Delita, it was the Jerusalem of Lithuania, it was one of the most important Jewish cities out there. So he's appointed to become the Vilna Magid, and we know that when Reb Chaim Eiser Grzhensky was the head of the Vilna Bezdin, so he had one of the highest rabbinical positions in the entire world. So this is a similar idea, it's the Vilna Magid. Um, and who do you replace? You replaced, you always had some prestigious uh, rabbinical personality in this position, Rabbi Yaakov David Velovsky, the Ridbaz. He was the Magid of Vilna before uh, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef. Uh, the Ridbaz went on to become the rabbi in Polotskin, later in, in Slutskin, later he was in Chicago, and then later in Tzvass, the whole story of his, a fascinating story of his life also. So Rabbi Yaakov Yosef is the Magid in Vilna, and um, after he leaves, there's all kinds of other um, prestigious uh, people who are part, of, who are in the they're in Magadav, or Mayor, or Mayor uh, Chaim Nayach uh, Levin, another Velazhin, or a descendant, was the Magad in Vilna for a period of time, and other ones. It was a very, very important position. And he also, because he was a Magad, so he was also a very talented speaker, dynamic, powerful, captivating, and audiences loved him. He was very popular. Now, the ones who hired him, the ones who were in charge of hiring in, in the Vilna Jewish community was the Kehila. The leaders of the Kehila was, which already at that time was controlled by the Haskala. Vilna was a center of the Haskala movement in Eastern Europe, the Russian Haskala. And, um, including the legendary Maskil Shmuel Yosef Finn. Rashi Finn, or Shai Finn, however you want to call him. He's another person. And the Vilna of his day, who we need to explore, because it's a fascinating story, and what type of maskil was he? He's the type of maskil, actually, that has the potential that one day someone will, will, will one, of the, one of the revisionists will revise uh, his story. And, 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 uh, and uh, since he was a, not a radical maskil, he was a moderate maskil, so then we'll, he has the potential to revise history. And, and we can, uh, I give it a few years, someone will put out something that he wasn't really a maskil altogether. But either way, he, he was. <laughs> so that's for another time. We'll talk about the Haskalah of Vilna and Shmuel Yosef Finn and his role and his relationship with the rabbinical establishment, which is actually very positive and, and he had good relationship with them and, and a very interesting uh, person and uh, personality and, and his story. So he's the one and him and the, the Kehillah, they hire, they hire the, it was officially, it wasn't the Kehillah, it was officially called the Tzedakah Gedailah, the great charity of Vilna, and uh, they hire him to be the Vilna Magid, and Rabbi Akiv got along with them amicably, with the, he had a good relationship with Finn and, uh, and other members of the uh, Vilna Keila, uh, and uh, so he was able to get along with, with all types. So he enjoyed several good years in Vilna, and uh, this forms the backdrop. You know, it's because in, in New York there's going to be a diverse Jewish community as well. Um, and uh, so this is, you know, he, he's, it's one of the reasons that he's considered a, 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 a you know, an important candidate is because he's someone who's able to de- deal with the diversity of Jewish life in Vilna. So he's probably going to be good for New York as well. So he, um, he accepts eventually this position as the Rav HaKoylel, the chief rabbi in New York. Why did he take it if he had such a great job in Vilna? It's very simple, because he was heavily in debt. He had incurred debts for whatever reason, and this was the only conceivable way, from his point of view, for him to face his creditors. He, he wanted to pay everyone back, and he did so. Shortly after his arrival in New York, he was able to publicize that he was reported back to to the newspapers back home that that he's able that he's he's able to pay off his debts and anyone you know he sent the money back and everything's okay and he was able to pay everyone back. So 
And very often in historiography, and you know, and when they appoint him, he's referred to as in New York in 1888. He's referred to as the Rav Hakoyel, uh, or in the English, it's very often referred to as the Chief Rabbi of New York City. So I just want to clarify what does it mean? He's the Chief Rabbi of New York City, and and the, the Rav Hakoyel. Um, just just so we you know get the picture of of New York Jewish life at the time. Um, first of all, just a, a, a very technical. The Bronx and Brooklyn are not part of New York City until 1898, when 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 the boroughs are formalized. So New York City means Manhattan. Okay, so it's, it's just that's just all the Jewish communities in Bronx and Brooklyn are are if as much as they existed at the time was wasn't that highly developed. Um, was is 1887, 1888. Um, it's only a few years into the Great Immigration. Um, so they it's but it only means Manhattan. In 1887, there were already over a hundred thousand. Jewish uh, families of all denominations and neighborhoods, you know, every type of Jew in, in, in every area of Manhattan who were residing in the city, in, in, in Manhattan. Um, now, another clarification, the Upper East Side German Jews were not part of the community who invited him. He was invited by the Russian Jewish community. So we're talking about only the downtown Jews from Eastern Europe, from Russia, on the Lower East Side, so it's limited in scope to a certain neighborhood in Manhattan. Okay. Um, next, the Great Immigration, like I said, was only about seven or eight years underway, uh, but there was already about a, a close to 130 Orthodox shuls, and some of those Orthodox shuls banded together to form an association, and that association invited him to become the rabbi, and that's where the title Chief Rabbi comes from. So, so again, remember that we're in the United States, so there's no official community. There's no, there's no, you know, every any Jewish community in the United States is voluntary. There's no officially recognized. There's no government recognition. You know, of course, all the secular and the socialists who are also Russian Jews living on the Lower East Side, obviously they weren't part of this association. They weren't inviting him. They weren't part of these Orthodox Jews, and they're not excited about it either. Um, so it was much more limited in scope than what it would be its counterpart in Eastern Europe, where a kehila, where a community had official government recognition and included all the Jews who lived in that town, uh, whether they liked it or not. So, so a chief rabbi would have a, a completely different meaning in Europe than it would have in the United States. So it, it wasn't the chief rabbi. Rabbi Kail, it sounds very nice, and and, uh, and and it sounds very big, and it was very big. He was very big. He as a person was tremendous. The title wasn't, uh, wasn't you know, we have to understand and take it into uh, proportion. It was a, a more limited. Um, also, once we mention the idea of, of chief rabbi, it's worth it's worth mentioning, it's usually looked at. It was a, it was a terrible tragedy. The way they treated him and such a great person and uh, and his ending. And of course, we'll talk about it next time. It didn't work out. Um, and very often in the books and and, and when he's discussed, uh, it, the, what's blamed is America and New York and and uh, the Trefa Medina and uh, and the uh, the you know the infighting within the community and the kashras and the butchers and all that and. Um, and very often it's it's put into the context of look in America they can't have a chief rabbi in New York they couldn't have a chief rabbi. I I'd like to know and again if anyone has more information on the subject I'd love to hear more about it. But as as far as I know the idea that in an urban setting where there is a large diverse Jewish community in the modern era chief rabbis were never were almost never very successful. 
It's very hard. In other words, the idea of a chief rabbi until modern Jewish history, and even in modern Jewish history, when it was a mid-sized town, or even a small town, or even a shtetl, is pretty straightforward. In a modern-day metropolis of the late 1800s, of the early 1900s, where there's huge urban settings with different neighborhoods and many, many shuls and diverse communities and different backgrounds and, and people came from all over and it's an industrial setting and it's very urban. That's a new phenomenon that never existed in the history of the Jewish people. And uh, I don't know how many chief rabbis were successful altogether. In Vilna, of course, we mentioned is the best example, but that has its own history and that has its own issues. But also Warsaw, Warsaw was not very successful with having chief unified chief rabbis in modern times. They had in the beginning when Warsaw was still small, before the modern era. Rebellion Chaim Meizel was the exception to the rule in Ludge. But you have to keep in mind that when Rebellion Chaim Meizel arrived in Ludge, the community was only 10,000 Jews and skyrocketed. It's an incredible demographic phenomenon, Ludge, during the 40 years that Rebellion Chaim Meizel was the rabbi there because it rose to 180,000 by the time he uh, passed away in 1912. Um, but otherwise, Ludge was not successful in having, a, not very successful anyway, they had a few attempts at having a chief rabbi after that. Lvov, also another big city, the Shalomeshiv, Rebesiv Shalnatanza was much earlier. Uh, in modern times, they didn't, wasn't the uh, Rapport. All the other big famous rabbis of Lvov were much earlier. Um, the, uh, the, 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 in modern times, they didn't, weren't very successful. Krakow, Kiev, Odessa, and Odessa he had for one period of time, the Rav Tsoyer, Rav Chaim Chernovitz. Uh, Moscow, the Jewish community there, at Rav Chaim Berlin for a short period of time. Rabbi Chaim, Meir Chaim Noach Levin, who I mentioned earlier, it didn't work out so well. Kavna, again, was a bit of an exception to the rule, especially with the Dvar Avram, who I discussed in another episode, and how he was so successful. Uh, and, and, that, and the exception in that case proves the rule. Budapest, uh, I don't know how many successful uh, chief rabbis there were for an entire unified Jewish community there. The biggest exception to this rule, of course, and I want to point it out, is Preshbrook. Bratislava, Slovakia, where the Sofer dynasty, all the, uh, really a dynasty, all the descendants of the Chasm Sefer right up to the war served in the rabbinate and were very successful and it was pretty much a very unified consensus of a Jewish community who, who backed them. So, uh, but again, the exceptions prove the rule and I'm not sure that an urban setting in modern times in anywhere in the world, not just New York, not just America, the Trefa Medina, but in anywhere would be, uh, would be a, a successful endeavor, um, um, to get to get to be able to be a chief rabbi in such a in such an environment, it's 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 a completely new uh, concept uh, that only reached with the you know with modern times and urbanization. Um, so a future episode will explore the entire saga of his appointment, the initial excitement and the optimism which came with his arrival in New York, and then the disappointment when it fell apart and, and his tragic passing. So if you want to you know sponsor that, you can be in touch with me. So this is Yudi Gabriel Jewish History Soundbites. You can uh, reach me at. Uh, com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, um, sponsorships, lectures, and anything else. And um, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.